Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy, in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Uh, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to, revenge, to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Christian Union's public meeting. My name is Matt. I'm one of the AFES staff workers with the CU. And today we'll be talking about true worship. Now, when I was in Year 5, our class went on an excursion to the Holocaust Museum. Uh, and we spent the whole day walking through exhibits, looking at horrifying pictures, uh, hearing tragic stories, reading plaques that described evil, evil things. Uh, and our homework was to write a recount of the day. Now, you remember recounts from school, right? A retelling of events. Uh, and do you know what I wrote about? I wrote about lunchtime and how much fun I had had chasing the birds in the park. And what happened is that I now spent the next week after this having teacher after teacher after teacher come up to me and chew me out for how thoughtless and uncaring I had been. Now apparently, and I only learnt this after the fact, there was an unspoken expectation that I would write about the horror of the Holocaust and how it had deeply impacted me. Now, in my defence, I was 10, and I really liked chasing birds. Uh, I still do, in fact. But, but looking back, you can sort of understand why that expectation was unspoken, can't you? Because there are some things in life that should change you. Uh, when you visit a Holocaust museum, you are supposed to be moved to horror and compassion. When you go through a slum in Africa or Asia, you should be moved 
to pity and to action. When you almost die, you should reassess your life choices. And to do otherwise would be illogical and foolish. So, for example, if you had a quadruple bypass after a lifetime of smoking, the one thing that you don't go and do is keep smoking. If you've ruined your family with gambling debts and you just happen to have a generous friend who decides to bail you out, the one thing that you don't do is go back to the casino. And that's because there are some things in life that should change us. Now, oftentimes they don't, and that's the tragedy, but they should. Now, you can add to those examples a whole bunch of others. A near-death experience, a profound insight into the meaning of life, uh, profound, poignant experiences. Uh, but, but the one thing that I think would slip everyone's list is the one that the Apostle Paul says should be at the very top of it. And that's the mercy of God. Now, we're starting up in Romans chapter 12 today. We've spent a bit of time there in previous semesters. And in verse 1 of today's passage, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, the mercy of God is something that should change you. In fact, as living sacrifices, and that really means our whole lives, it should change all of you. And if it doesn't, well, it's both illogical and foolish. You might as well just be a ten-year-old child, too busy chasing the birds in the park, to appreciate what it is that God has done for you. And what Paul says is that if you have received the mercy of God, then the only right response is worship. Now I want you to look more closely there at verse 1, because Paul doesn't just say worship, does he? He says true and proper worship. Now, the Greek word that phrase true and proper is translating, it literally means rational. Uh, but not in the sense of like intellectual reason, but in the sense of internally and spiritually true. And so rational worship is authentic worship. And I think that should give us pause. Because if Paul is saying that the right response to God's mercy is true and proper worship, then that suggests that there can be false and improper worship. A whole bunch of ways people worship. People meditate, they sacrifice animals, they go on pilgrimages, lots of options on the table. And what Paul is suggesting is that some of them probably aren't right. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to work out what worship looks like. It's nature, it's pattern, it's goal. And then once we've done that, we're going to move through some worked examples. Uh, and specifically, we're going to look at what worship looks like in the Christian community. And then more broadly, we're going to look at what worship looks like in our relationships. So how about we do just that? First of all, let's look at worship. Now, when we talk about worship, there's a certain amount of deconstruction that needs to be done. Uh, because we hear the word worship, and the picture that we call to mind is not actually the picture that the Bible calls to mind. Uh, I think the picture that most of us would have is of a bunch of people in an auditorium, hands in the air, eyes closed, singing praises to God. Uh, there's a band with people called worship leaders who help us enter into a time of worship. And so for many of us, the concept of worship is a highly specialised term that refers to a particular activity at a particular time. But that's not how the Bible understands worship. 
doesn't have a particular time or activity in mind. In fact, it's concerned with an entire way of life. Uh, remember, what does Paul say there in verse 1? True worship is the offering of our bodies as sacrifices to God. Now, not in death and martyrdom. We don't go throw ourselves on a grenade, although that could possibly be within the realm of possibility. Uh, but in life, because those sacrifices are living. And what this tells us is that worship is fundamentally about our bodies and what we do with them. Now, what does that look like? How do you worship with your bodies? Well, if any of you have been to a wedding recently, you might have come across some of the old school wedding vows. There's, there's a line in one of them that reads, With my body, I worship you. And that doesn't mean that the husband spends all his time bowing down to his wife. Now, I can imagine there'd be a number of wives who would love that as the way he worships. But the word worship actually just means service. And so to worship somebody with your body simply means to serve them with your body. It means making them a cup of tea, or vacuuming the floors, or bringing the groceries in. And so worship, what this actually means, is, is that worship is really boring. Uh, and what I mean by that is that it's actually unremarkable. Uh, most of the time, you don't even notice it's happening. It doesn't feel like it, it doesn't look like it, you could stare directly at it, and you wouldn't have an idea that that was worship. Uh, and I think that's because we tend to think of worship as this sort of out-of-body experience where we're taken out of ourselves and we experience some sort of ecstatic joy or, or this transcendent peace comes upon us. But true and proper worship is grounded. Uh, it's earthy, it's gritty, and it's incredibly practical because it centers on what we do with our bodies. Now, the reason bodies center so prominently in true and proper worship is because of their history. Now, I don't know whether you went to high school. I certainly, do you know that sick burn where somebody goes to shake your hand and you just kind of go, whoa, I'm not touching that. I have no idea where that's been. Well, I'm about to tell you where it's been. It's been doing some sinful, sinful things. In fact, your hand and the rest of your body has been under the dominion of sin and death. Uh, the very dominion that God in His mercy has rescued you from. And so, where you once lived as a slave to sin, dead in sin, doing wicked things, you now have been made alive to God, placed under His rule, to use your body to do righteous things. And that's why verse 2 in our passage today says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Um, the, the word for world is actually age. And what Paul is saying is that you no longer belong to the current age. Uh, that was the age of sin and death. And to use your bodies in such a way that you conform yourself to that age, that's not rational worship. In fact, that's irrational, that's ingenuine, that's inauthentic. The mercy of God rescued you from that age. So why would you continue to chase the birds and act as if nothing has changed? No, Paul says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Because true worship is about what we do with our bodies. Now, this of all, of course, all raises the most important question, I think, for us today. And that question is, how then do I know what God wants me to do with my body? Uh, because think about it, right? You can do a lot of things with your body. Uh, how do I know that at any given moment, what I am doing with it is pleasing to Him? 
I mean, some things are really obvious, like do I just follow the Ten Commandments, make sure that I don't stab anyone or punch anyone? Uh, but, but what about um, more complex situations? For example, do I eat the fourth Tim Tam? Or do I save it for later? Uh, what about exercise? What do I, is smoking okay? What about kissing my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Um, do I give that homeless person the change that's in my pocket when 100% he's just going to take it and buy cigarettes? How do I know what to do with my body? Uh, and this is where verse 2 again is really helpful. Uh, I want you to notice there that God's will doesn't just come to us. Uh, we don't have an epiphany or a dream or a still small voice that speaks to us during our quiet times telling us what to do. Paul actually says here that we test and approve what God's will is. Uh, the process is almost like trial and error, uh, much more so than some sort of supernatural intervention where I'm really just feeling that God is leading me to date that guy or to change churches. Now, that's not how we discern the will of God. Now, how do we do it? Well, he tells us there how we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, and it's only then, and this is the second half of verse 2, that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So in other words, what this means is that as we grow in our understanding of the truth, we will be better able to look around at any particular situation and know how to act. Uh, and the more that we engage in this process of the renewal of our minds, the better we will get at it, the more informed we will be of God's will, the more transformed we will be, and the better able we will be uh, to use our bodies in worship. Uh, and that's why we devote so much time at the CU to reading and understanding the Bible. Uh, the CU, contrary to popular belief, is not the head knowledge club, preferencing the head over the heart. No, the CU is all about proper worship. Renewing the head, we change the heart so that together we grow in our bodily worship of the God who saves us. And that's why it's so important to put yourself under the Word. Be regular at church, be regular at public meeting, go to your small group, come to Equip. Zoom sucks, social interaction is really crappy over Zoom. But anything, anything at all to be renewing your mind, because in doing so you come to know God's will, and that enables you to offer your body in true worship of God. Now, I appreciate this is all a bit full on. We've essentially just covered the basics of worship and guidance. And that's pretty much two MYCs right there. Uh, but that's okay. There's a lot to conceptually grasp here. But the good news is that the rest of Romans, Romans 12, 13, 14 and 15, all of them are the application of this process that Paul gives us in verses 1 and 2. Renew your mind know God's will, offer your body, and worship God. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to turn our attention to some worked examples and see if we can't work this process deeper into our minds and our hearts. And what we're going to do is, by doing it, find out what worship looks like in a bunch of different spaces. So, first of two worked examples, the first space, this is verses 3 to 8. It's Christian community. In Christian community... Worship looks like humble service. Read verse 3 with me. This is what Paul says. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now remember the pattern. Step 1, renew the mind. 
It's not a coincidence that in verse 3, Paul uses mind words four times. Uh, if you look back there at verse 3, we could give you a much more literal translation that would read something like this. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober thinking. My question to you is, do you think that Paul is trying to tell us something? I think he's helping us be transformed by the renewing of our minds, isn't he? It's very clear, having just come from that point. So how did we used to think? Well, that's a good question to ask. Um, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, apparently. Uh, we all have egos. We know this to be true. Um, we, by default, think that the world revolves around me. We think of our own needs over and above others. We're unaware of other people's needs. We tend to think that we are God's gift to the world. But to continue to think that way is to be conformed to the old age and not the new. So then, that's how we used to think. How should we think? Well, Paul here says that we should think of ourselves with sober judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that we're down on ourselves, like we kind of wander around in isolation saying to ourselves, I am crap, I am crap, I am crap. No, that's not what sober judgment means. Sober judgment means right judgment, accurate judgment. Paul is telling us to rein in our ego and start thinking truly about ourselves. And he wants us to measure ourselves by the right standard. And that's why he says uh, what he says later on in verse 3, that to think of ourselves with sober judgment, we need to do it in accordance with the faith that has, God has distributed to each one of us. Now, this phrase here is notoriously difficult to interpret. Uh, but what is clear is that it is the faith that God distributes which is the standard by which we measure ourselves. Now, the issue is what that faith could mean. Now, there's actually really two options. Um, it could either mean faith as in the faith, as in the gospel that we've all been given, um, or it could mean faith as in our faith, specifically the relative strength of our faith compared to others. Now, this proved to be a bit of a conundrum for me over the last week. There are good arguments for both, and there are problems with both, and you can ask me about it in question time. But at the moment, I'm leaning towards the faith being our own faith. Now, what Paul is calling us to do is discern our own faith in relation to everyone else's faith and so understand our place in the body. Uh, in, importantly, to not think that we are better or above or, or, or anything more than we actually are. And that's why Paul says what he says here in verse 4. Grab your Bibles, have a look. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, I find these verses particularly curious, because as he's speaking, you're actually expecting him to say something like this in verse 5. So in Christ, we, though one, are different members, and we each have different functions. I feel like that's where the metaphor is leading. And whilst that is true, um, it's not what Paul is trying to emphasise. What he's trying to emphasise is our interdependence. Though many, we are one body. And, and this is the critical part, each member belongs to all the other members. Paul says to us, brothers and sisters, you've got to stop thinking of yourself as an isolated individual, capable of living and breathing and doing life by yourself, because you aren't and you can't. You've got to start thinking of yourself soberly 
And that means realizing that you are part of a complex whole that God has put together so that together you can grow and function. So that's the renewing of our minds. That's step one. Uh, now we're in a position to know what God's will is. Um, what does he want me to do? Well, he wants me to play my part, fulfill my function. He doesn't want me to kind of uh, go off over there and do my own thing uh, without reference to the body that I'm a part of, that I belong to, that I need and that needs me. So what do I do with my body? Well, it's very simple. I serve my brothers and my sisters. Uh, and this is where our gifts come in. Uh, you can have a look there in verse 6, 7 and 8. I use the gifts that God has given me. That's how I serve my brothers and sisters. Uh, and this is the great thing about being a part of the body of Christ. No matter who you are, you have something to contribute. And that's why sober judgment doesn't mean I'm crap, I'm crap, I'm crap, I'm crap. Right? Because you have gifts. In fact, verse 6 tells us that you've got at least one. God says so. Uh, he has given them to you. And he calls you to worship him by using them. Now, when you walk into church, uh, that's not the sort of worship that you're expecting to give, is it? Uh, I stole that uh, line from Tim's talk on Tuesday. It's a fantastic point. We have a very, very different perception of what worship is. Uh, I know a lot of Christians who treat Sunday church as their kind of personal power-up sessions. It gees them up. It gives them strength to get through to the next week. And it's actually really quite sad because it's almost like medication. You kind of go to get topped up and then you kind of head out. But that's not what worship is. Paul says that at church, just like at every other point in the week, we are to be more like the doctor than the patient. Not taking medication, but giving it out. We are to be like the Lord Jesus who came to serve, not to be served. And so it's worth asking the question, what gifts has God given you? And how can you serve the body with them? It doesn't have to be a formal ministry role at church. I mean, have a look at the list in verses 7 and 8. I mean, teaching, leading, they're formal. But encouragement? Well, you don't need a license to encourage. You don't need an official role. You just do it. Uh, and so whatever it is, whatever your gift is, serve the body. Because that's what worship looks like in Christian community. Humble service. So that's our first worked example. Now let's move on to our second as we continue to explore worship. Second worked example. What does worship look like in our relationships? Uh, and I want to say that in our relationships, worship looks like sincere love. So humble service in Christian community, sincere love in all our relationships. Now this one's going to be a little different because technically it's not a worked example so much as a fire hose to the face. Because in the rest of the chapter, verse 9 and onwards, Paul kind of gives you 30 commandments in the space of 13 verses. And if that's not a recipe for kind of indigestion, I don't know what is. And to me, at least on an initial appraisal, it looks like Paul has broken one of the golden rules of teaching, which is don't put too much on the plate. Uh, better to have one or two really good meals that you can enjoy deeply than put out 30 that you won't even get to nibble. Uh, so what's happening here? Uh, is Paul just really a bad teacher? Well, I suspect that you know the answer. The answer is no, he's not a bad teacher. But what is he doing? Well, he's actually doing something very different here. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we discern the will of God through trial and error. And the reason for that is because our reality is so complex 
but no amount of rules and regulations could possibly anticipate every situation that we're faced with where we need to make a moral decision. It's too hard. You can't just lay down rules like that. And in fact, lawyers have a whole discipline called case law where they match old case rulings to the current trial to work out what to decide. Because the laws as they stand are insufficient to definitively say what should be done in the specific circumstance. They're too general. All they do is they give you moral principles. Uh, and that's because every moral situation you find yourself in is actually going to be unique. Uh, there are no answers. It will require wisdom and discernment. Should I keep having this evangelistic conversation that's gone for over an hour? It's really promising. I might get somewhere with it. Or should I go to class on time? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, but what it does, though, is it gives you a set of principles, things to renew your mind, that will help you discern the will of God in any situation so that you will know what to do with your bodies and then offer them as a pleasing rather than as a misguided act of worship. And so what Paul is doing here, verses 9 all the way down to verses 21, is he's laying out principle after principle, general command after general command, to kind of lay out the bounds and the shape and the direction of how we are to use our bodies, uh, specifically in our relationships with other people. So that as we interact with other people, whether they be in the Christian community, which is sort of kind of verses 9 to 16, uh, or whether they're outside of the Christian community, sort of verses 17 to 21, whatever it is, we will know how to interact with them in a way that worships and honours God. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, we, we just don't have the time to go through this list and do justice to each one of these commands. Um, some of them are really interesting, some of them are worth meditating on, so maybe that's something you can do at home. But instead what we're going to do is we're going to briefly look at two, almost two real scenarios, and think about how these commands might help us test and approve what God would have us do. Okay, so you with me so far? Let's look at two scenarios and try and put these kind of general principles into practice. First one, hypothetically speaking, there's a pandemic and you find yourself isolated in your family home. Now, I know you're going to have to use your imagination for this one. Now, now you wake up at 10. No, 11. Now, let's make that 12. 12 o'clock, ready to start a new day. Now, now, tensions are running high in the family home. It's cramped. Uh, parents are working from home, your annoying younger siblings are still alive. Uh, how do you worship God in a space like this? Well, let's uh, try out some of these things. First of all, verse 12, uh, you'll be patient in affliction. Uh, you'll work hard at not losing your temper or lashing out irrationally. Uh, in fact, verse 16, you'll seek to live in harmony with one another. You'll wash up after yourself, you'll keep the dining table uncluttered, you'll do the things that your parents ask you to do, um, all so that you can ease the tensions in the house and be loving and show sincere love. That's verse 9. You won't demand bathroom or TV rights because verse 14, you'll be seeking to honour others above yourself. If your brother's a jerk, well then you treat him with kindness rather than rough physical affection. Why? Because verse 17 we are not to repay evil with evil. Are you starting to see how these general commands can help guide us in specific situations? Uh, there's tons of different ways that you can obey them, and you don't have to do them all. Um, for all I know, your mum's a slob, and, and she might not care if you wash the dishes, um, but she might care um, if you're there for family time. 
uh, whatever it is, they orient us to our situation and constrain and direct our decision making regarding what it is that we do with our bodies. So that's the first scenario. Second scenario, uh, and this one's for later, we're back on campus, uh, you happen to be in your tutorial, uh, and during a discussion, another student calls Christians bigoted and evil. More and more likely, I think, particularly at an arts-based university like UWA. Uh, and then they look and they see you wearing your Christian Union t-shirt because you bought one and you're wearing it because you're flying the flag. Uh, what do you do at that moment of recognition? Well, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that we are to boldly defend the faith, even if it's a simple matter of saying, um, no, I don't believe that. I think Jesus stood up for what was good and, and, and smashed out what was evil. Uh, but the way that we respond to that matters. We don't just kind of arc up and we go, you filthy atheist. No, we don't. What we do is we treat them with kindness and respect. Um, we don't repay evil for evil, but evil with good. Um, and then we remember things like, you know, God says, I will repay. Uh, they will have to answer for what they have said. Um, but our job is not to bring that to bear. That is God's. Our job is to bless them rather than curse them. Because verse 21, we overcome evil with good. And so those are just two snapshots of what worship could look like uh, in different relationships. That's a bit of a hodgepodge, but it's sort of meant to be because life is messy. Uh, but when you do distill it down, what it really looks like is the first thing that we saw in verse 9, which is that love must be sincere. So let's wrap this up. Uh, I hope by now that you can see what true worship actually looks like. Uh, the life of worship is not one with eyes closed and hands raised. No, but the life of worship is actually one with eyes open and hands ready to humbly serve and to sincerely love. It is unremarkable. Usually you won't feel anything different as you do it. But when it's lived properly, it is unmistakable. And so as you head out into the rest of your week, let me encourage you. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, because that is the way that you offer true and proper worship to Him, the One who saved you by His great mercy.